uh, will represent the theme that we have as a church this year as we look at how we specifically will aim to bring restoration through the gospel to Cincinnati and the world. Uh, The year 2024 will be uh, the year of love thy neighbor at the Oaks Church. So uh, we see a new opportunity as we move into the church building on Montgomery Road in a new neighborhood to love new neighbors, uh, quite literally, the people that will be uh, situated in that neighborhood around our new church building. But also, we want to consider what it looks like for each of us who have received the love of Christ to love those that God has placed within proximity of us, uh, be it the people that are in your home, at your workplace, those that you study with, go to class with, live near. What does it look like for us to be intentional about love thy neighbor, uh, the heart of our church to bring restoration through the gospel to Cincinnati and the world, but ultimately is the heart of Christ toward us and toward others. Now, We're going to take the time this morning to look at Luke chapter 10. Uh, So if you have a copy of God's Word, you can go ahead and grab it. Uh, We're going to get there. It will probably be a little bit longer of an intro today, uh, just because we are building the foundation for much of what we will continue to build on for the rest of the year. Uh, If you're a first-time guest, this is a great Sunday to be here, because we're going to be talking about a lot of the things that I think will impact our church, not just for this year, but for years to come. Uh, If you are a first-time guest, know that we're grateful you're here. We'd love for you to visit us at the Connect table before you leave so that we can help get you connected and answer any questions that you might have. Now, as we consider the theme of love thy neighbor, I want to begin with a question. Have you ever heard the term dirt cheap? Of course you have. It's a common phrase that is used. If something is cheap as dirt, then that means that it basically has little to no value. It's practically worthless. Now, if that's the case, why would anyone ever decorate their house with dirt? Now, this was the question that my two sons had last week whenever we were staying in an Airbnb in Indianapolis. Uh, So we were there for Trevor and Grace Stantliff's wedding. I was officiating the wedding. Abby was singing, and we had the rehearsal dinner on Friday night in Indy. So we just made a whole weekend of it. We spent the night at an Airbnb that was someone's uh, finished basement, and then the next day, you know, had the wedding and did some fun stuff like that. Now, here's the deal. Even though this Airbnb was tucked deep into the heart of the suburbs of Indianapolis, the owners of this place were ruthlessly committed to the nautical theme, okay? So although this was like finished basement, brick home, you walk in and it is like coastal beach condominium. You're like, this is very interesting. Uh, you just never know what you're going to get with an Airbnb, right? And the walls were lined with shadow boxes that had postcards in them. And then in each one of those shadow boxes, there were about six to eight jars of dirt with, you know, a little cork in the top. And then written in Sharpie were different places. So Punta Cana, Pensacola Beach, you know, like Destin, all of these different places. Now, Why? did they have jars of dirt? Something that we would say is dirt cheap, and yet they were using it as decor in their home. Uh, Well, we can kind of use our logic and think perhaps they are geologists, and they are collecting samples for some study that that they're using. Now, obviously, we'd say that's not the case. We can safely assume that this Midwestern couple that lived in the heart of Indianapolis, doesn't just like to collect dirt. They love the beach. You can see it from the pictures they had 
and home and everything else that corresponded to their love for the beach. Now, I'm, I'm using my imagination, but I would imagine that that home, that finished basement on Castleton Boulevard, belonged to a couple that loved to spend their extra money and their extra time going somewhere that's warmer than here and sitting on the beach with a good book. And here's why I'm saying all this. Because as we set our sights on loving our neighbor this year, I want loving our neighbor to be more than just one task on many tasks that are on a list. I want it to be more than a box to check. I want it to be more than just a moral obligation we feel because Jesus said it. I want you to understand that loving your neighbor isn't just a jar of dirt in a shadow box. No, it is evidence. It is evidence of a deeper love that spills into every single area of our life. Those jars of dirt and those shadow boxes weren't just jars of dirt. They corresponded to a greater reality and a deeper love elsewhere. And the same is true in our love for others. You see, in that same way that this Midwestern couple's love for the beach then caused them to scoop up a handful of sand and put it in a jar and then collect seashells and then completely transform their finished basement. Our love for God flows from our personal experience of God's love and then leads to pervasive transformation in every other aspect of our lives. So if we're to love others, if we're to truly love thy neighbor, we must first sink our toes into the sand of God's love for us. We must hear the crashing waves of God's word on a daily basis, of his truth driving out the lies, of his promises reminding us of his character and how he relates to us. The the salty air of the Spirit's work must fill our lungs and lead us joyfully into a cold world that needs to feel the warm embrace of Christ's love for them. You see, to love thy neighbor, you must love the Lord. And to love the Lord, to truly love the Lord with all your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength, you must live in the conscious awareness of his moment-by-moment love for you. That's the only way that this is possible. Which is why I would say that loving your neighbor is a response to receiving the love of God and is an act of loving God in itself. Loving thy neighbor is a response to receiving the love of God because he first loved us. But at the same time, loving your neighbor is an act of loving God in itself. Let me explain that a little bit more. The question that you might have on your mind as I did this week is what is the relationship between loving God and loving neighbor? How do do these two commands that Drew just read in Mark 12 inform our lives? How do they relate to one another? How do they correspond? Well, first, they are successive, right? So you must love God in order to love neighbor. They're, They're successive. There's a chronological nature to loving God and then loving neighbor. It's like the root of our love for God produces the fruit of love for others. Uh, it's, it's logical. It is a horse must come before the cart kind of situation in one sense. And, and in another sense, they're simultaneous. So you don't wait until you're like, okay, I've finally loved God with all of my heart. I've finally loved God with all of my soul and with all of my mind and with all of my strength. You know what? Now it's time to love other people too. 
No, you, you show your love for God by loving other people. In fact, one of the ways that you can be reminded of loving God is in the way that you love other people. These are inseparable. Um, put it like this. You can exhale without singing, right? Every time you exhale, you're not, you're not singing. But you can't sing without exhaling. Okay, you can do nice things for people, but we do nice things for people all the time, and sometimes our motives are driven by love for self. We want to look good. We don't want to feel bad. We can love other people in a cultural sense without loving God, right? We can exhale without singing. But what we see in this passage is that to truly love others is to love God as well because we're, we're treating people well that are created in His image, people that God loves. Which brings us to the third way that loving God and loving neighbor, neighbor relate to one another, and that is that they are synonymous. So in Galatians 5.14, Paul says that you obey the entirety of the law in this, that you love your neighbor as yourself. Wait, Paul, what about loving God? And he's saying, well, these are synonymous. The only way that you will truly be able to love your neighbor is if you have love for God. In fact, whenever you are loving your neighbor, you're actually loving God. This is good news, right? This, this doesn't mean that you're loving God whenever you read your Bible, and then you go into the kitchen and start packing your kids' lunch for school, and now you're doing something totally different. No, what you're doing is you are taking care of those that are entrusted to you. You're obeying God's commands. You're showing Christ-like character. And thus, while you are loving another, simultaneously, synonymously, you are loving God. So instead of saying this is either one thing or the other, we see it as two wings of an airplane. And the Christian life is lived in flight, suspended by both loving God and loving others. So with all of that in the background, I want to consider five movements this morning. Who knows? Got a lot of notes. We might hit three and finish up the next week. That is totally fine. Um, The first one is this, a command to love. We're going to see a command to love in Luke chapter 10 to love the Lord and to love thy neighbor. Now, before I read verses 25 through 27, I want you to just kind of open your Bible to Luke 10, just kind of let your eyes fall on verses 17 through 24 to bring us up to speed. Where are we at contextually whenever we drop into Luke's gospel here? Well, what we see in Luke 10, verse 17, is the 72 disciples of Jesus got 72 at this point that have just returned from their first mission trip, and they are jazzed. They are pumped up. Why? Because Jesus sent them out with his authority, and they went, and they went preaching, and people believed. They proclaimed the good news, and demons were cast out of people that were possessed. They were seeing the kind of miracles that they had only read in Old Testament prophets taking place before their very eyes. And so just imagine them there. They're exhausted. They've got dusty feet. Their faces are sun-kissed just from being out on this missionary journey. And they're exchanging stories, right? Oh, like we met this one woman and you wouldn't believe what you saw. And then another guy chimes in and he's like, there was a man who hadn't walked since birth. And they're just exchanging these stories. And Jesus lovingly comes alongside them, encourages them, and then says, rejoice in this, yes. But rejoice even more that your name is written in heaven. And then verse 21 says, in that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. Now think about this. What brings joy to Jesus? What, what causes a smile to come across the face of Christ? 
We read in verse 21. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. What, what warms Christ's heart with joy? That God loves so much that he reveals himself to the unimpressive and undeserving. He says, you haven't just made yourself known to the noble and the religious elite and those that are prized by society. No, you make yourself known to the least of these. He, he calls his disciples, and as he hears about those who believe the good news of his disciples, he says, you make yourself known to little children. Now, he's not just talking about infants or adolescents. He's, he's using a, a metaphor because what are children like? They're vulnerable. They're completely dependent. They're needy. And, and Jesus in prayer says, thank you for revealing yourself to such as these, such as us. And he's reminding even his disciples in the same way that he's reminding us here that your ultimate source of joy and hope is that your name is in heaven, not in what you see, not in your circumstances. Now, apparently he was saying this in somewhat of a crowd as the disciples returned, and there would have been many who heard him. Then in kind of a more hushed tone in verse 23, he turns to the disciples and says, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Now, he says that to them. Apparently, somewhere in the crowd, there was a man who had been pondering that statement of Jesus. Thank you, Father, you've revealed yourself to those that are just like little children, not the nobles and elites. And uh, this man looks down at his... A very expensive robe, considers that he is a lawyer full of learning, in fact, an expert in the law, one that might actually fit the description of those that you would expect God to reveal himself to, and surprisingly, does not just reveal himself to. Well, then he stands up, clears his throat, and then asks Christ a question, which is exactly where we find ourselves in verse 25 of chapter 10. And behold, a lawyer stood up, to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So verse 25 introduces us to a new character with not so subtle intentions. He's asking a question, and perhaps this question to some of the onlookers, some of the people in the room, could perceive this as a sincere inquiry. And yet Luke, as Jesus, knew that this was a test. This was a trap. He's not actually wondering how to inherit eternal life. He's trying to trip Jesus up. Uh, how is this a test? You might be like, well, like, this seems like a pretty innocent question to ask, but here's what's taking place. We were just told earlier in Luke 10 that Jesus taught with authority. Now, if Jesus answers in a way that somehow is perceived as contradicting Moses, who was revered in Jewish life and thought, then they could say, well, he's contradicting Moses, thus he's a heretic. And then if they could convince the Jews, if the religious elite could convince the Jews that Jesus was a heretic, then no one would want to follow him. And in fact, he would be viewed as a rebel. And if he could be viewed as a rebel in Judaism, then they could make the case to Caesar and to Rome that he is an insurrectionist and a threat to Caesar's power. And so even though this seems like a just kind of innocent question, it is trying to set up a domino effect 
that would lead to getting rid of Christ. And we'll see eventually, because of God's providence and how God has ordained the life of Christ and His work, that something to that sort will happen later in Christ's life. But look at how Jesus responds in this instance. With wisdom, after He's asked this question, He says, what is written in the law? He begins to examine the one who saw himself as the examiner. He says, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? What he's saying is, how do you interpret it? How do you apply what the law of God says? Now, remember, this is a lawyer, not the kind of lawyer like we would think of. No, he is a, an expert in biblical law. He, he knows the command of God. He's well-versed in the study of Scripture. And so now, Jesus has, in effect, put this lawyer on the metaphorical witness stand. And now everybody in the room is wondering how he is going to answer. How do you summarize all the laws of God? In the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, there are 613 commands. Is he about to just start listing them off? Does he maybe just say the Ten Commandments? Like, how does he answer this question of Jesus? And he is going to refer to a very familiar and well-known passage of Scripture called the Shema. We find in Deuteronomy 6, it would have been uh, familiar because every Jew would have said these words every morning and every evening. And so the lawyer recites it to Jesus here in verse 27. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And then he says, and your neighbor as yourself. Now, that portion, your neighbor as yourself, actually comes from Leviticus 19.18. We'll talk about that a little bit more next week and the week following. And it was often paired with the Shema to just kind of show this holistic love God and love neighbor. This would have been very familiar for everybody in the crowd, uh, for the Jews, and Jesus probably even anticipated that this man would answer in his way. Well, why is that? Because this perfectly summarizes the law. Even the Ten Commandments, you can see, is divided into two sections. The first four commands of the Ten Commandments uh, pertain to the way that we love God. They're vertical, if you will. Uh, the final six commands of the Ten Commandments are more in relation to how we treat others. And there's a horizontal element to those commands. And so here he cites the Shema, saying that you love the Lord with all your being and you also love your neighbor. Now, let me ask, as a new covenant Christian, as one who is saved by grace and not by your works, how do you expect Jesus to respond to this man's question? Well, look at what he says in verse 28. And he said, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. Do these things and you will live. Well, that begs the question for us, right? How do we, how do we apply this? As those that are free from the law and saved by grace, how do we see a passage like this? Well, what I hope that you see is that a person that is truly saved by grace will evidence that salvation in receiving the love of God by a love for God and by a love for others. So the person that is saved by grace is free from the law. You do not earn your salvation. You do not earn your righteousness. And at the same time, you will love God you will love others with all of your being because of the way that God has loved you. So when we realize that we were dead and hopeless in our sin, we realize that we were completely saved by grace, that we're now indwelt by the Holy Spirit, living with love for God is a display of genuine salvation. 
It's a desire that now fuels our sanctification, our growth. We want to love God and love others because we have been loved. And this is evidence of receiving, inheriting the eternal life that only Christ can offer. With that being said, let's slowly walk through the command that is given in Deuteronomy 6. Let's look at verses 4 through 6 of Deuteronomy 6 to see where this man drew this command from. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give to you today must be on your hearts. Now, as we jump into Deuteronomy 6, uh, it's good for us to have a little bit of context. What's taking place here? Well, we know that Deuteronomy was written by Moses. Uh, The entirety of Deuteronomy was written in about a month's time. Uh, Deuteronomy was written on the edge of going into the promised land. So they are about to go into the promised land after 40 years of being in the wilderness. And Deuteronomy literally means the second law. It's the second giving of the law. God is telling his people, whenever you go into the land, this is how you are to be holy. This is how you are to flourish. This is how you live as my people. And although thousands of years have passed, this command still shows us, reveals to us how to live the good life in the conscious presence of God. Now let's consider each part of this command. Deuteronomy 6, 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That word hear there is the Hebrew word Shema, which is why the entirety of this verse is just called the Shema. Whenever you see that it says hear, this isn't just make sure that there is, you know, auditory sound coming into your eardrums. No, it carries with it the idea of obey. So if I put my hands on my boy's shoulders and say, listen to me. That is not just, hey, make sure that you're within earshot of me. No, it's obey what I am saying. And so God, through Moses, is saying, hear, O Israel. He says, the Lord is one. Now, that's important because Egypt, where the people of God had come from, was a a pagan culture with polytheism everywhere, multiple pagan gods. The place that they're going into, into Canaan, everybody that lived there were polytheists. There was uh, a myriad of pagan gods to worship. He says, remember, your Lord is one. There is one God that you worship. And think about that. If you are someone who lives in a polytheistic religion, your allegiance to whatever or whomever you worship must always be divisible by 100%. Because you cannot give everyone everything, every part of you. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters, and he is right. But the good news is because our Lord is one, we don't have to. We can give him our complete allegiance because the Lord is one. Which leads us to what is said in verse 5. In response to the fact that the Lord is one, that he has revealed himself first to us, Uh, We are responding to a conversation that God himself has already initiated, we love. The Hebrew word for love here isn't merely a feeling. Love in the scriptures is a matter of both affection but also action. Uh, Love is this word that pertains to seeking, knowing, serving, obeying, enjoying, and desiring. 
the Puritan John Owen said that our love for God is seen in resting in Him, delighting in Him, revering Him, and obeying Him. The word ahava used throughout Scripture is used to describe the way that Abraham loved his son Isaac. It describes the way that Jonathan loved David as a friend, the way that Israel revered King David as a good king. It even shows the way that King Hiram had loyalty to King David that caused him to support the building of the temple through King Solomon. And so in Scripture, I want you to see that uh, love is an emotion, it's a matter of affection, but it's much more than that. It's more of like a filing cabinet word that contains the ideas, the attitudes, the actions of desiring, serving, knowing, seeking, obeying, and enjoying. Love God like that. Love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. I want to dig into what the Scripture is teaching us to do here. First, we love God with all of our heart. What does that mean? I believe that the first aspect of our being the spotlight is shown upon here is what's going on internally, what's going on beneath the surface. Uh, I know that you, probably much like me, often run a software update on your phone whenever you get that notification. And, you know, you don't want to do it. You've hit remind me later, like for two weeks in a row, and you're like, okay, this is the night. I'm actually going to leave it on the charger. I'm connected to Wi-Fi. We're going to make this happen. And then, all right, so your phone updates while you're sleeping. And whenever you grab your phone in the morning, you're not like, this is heavier. Or like, this doesn't fit in my pocket anymore. This thing is completely changed. No. What's changed? What's underneath the hood, right? The internal operating system has changed. The reason that the icons look differently or the apps function in a different way is because the underlying operating system has changed. And in the first place that the Shema focuses here as the, is the underlying operating system of your personhood. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart. Proverbs 4, 23 says, guard your heart for from it flow the springs of life. In Scripture, the heart is the control center of the person. It's the control center of your entire being. And so as we consider the heart, where the springs of life flow from, then what we can observe is that in our desires and what our minds gravitate toward and what we long for and the way that we see our will exercised is the overflow of what's going on in our heart. So we want to love God with our heart, our being, what's going on underneath the surface. But not only that, we're called to love the Lord with all of our soul. Now, I think it's common to maybe think about the soul and think, okay, the soul is uh, the part of us that you can't see, right? It's just uh, maybe parts that make up our personality or uh, the, the stuff that can't be visualized. But whenever we look at the scriptures, specifically the first five books of the Bible, uh, we see that the way that the word soul is often used is to really encapsulate what we would often consider our soul and our body. It's the word nephesh. So, for example, in Genesis 2-7, we read that Yahweh God formed the man. So he's forming Adam of dust from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and then he became a living nephesh. He became a living creature. Not just the, the stuff inside of a person that you can't see. No, the, the whole being. So why does the Shema here move from heart 
to soul? I believe it's because God is saying, don't just love with the internal, with the heart. Love externally. Uh, It should be physically visible, your love for the Lord. So we love the Lord, yes, with our desires and with our motives, but we also love the Lord in the way that we use our time, in the way that we respond to suffering, in the way that we leverage our skills, our lives for the Lord. It is a heart and soul kind of love, which leads us to the next aspect of the Shema. We love the Lord with all of our strength. Uh, The word here in uh, Hebrew is called me'od. It, it can be translated might or strength. Maybe you've seen that in, uh, in other translations of Scripture. Now, this is actually a very interesting word. Maybe you consider our passage in Luke 10, and you said, okay, wait, Jesus just said that he quoted it right whenever he said, love the Lord your God with all of your strength and your mind. In other places, when Jesus quotes this verse, he says, love the Lord your God with all of your mind and your strength. Why does, why does he do that? Well, it's because the, the word me'od is kind of difficult to translate. In Aramaic translations, it's even translated as wealth. And so this word can actually encapsulate uh, loving the Lord with all of your resources, love the Lord with all of your thinking, all of your mind, all of your strength, all of your willpower, everything that you have access to, love the Lord with that. This word is used nearly 300 times in Scripture. But interestingly enough, it is only used one other place like a noun as it is here. In most other places, it's actually the word very. It operates as an adverb. And so you see it whenever uh, God creates everything, and he says it is very good, me'od good. Uh, Whenever the floods in the story of Noah begin to rise, the sea is me'od powerful. It's very powerful. Whenever Cain grows angry with Abel, he is very angry. And so if you're translating Deuteronomy 6, literally, it says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, love the Lord with all of your soul, and love the Lord your God with all of your veriness. Just love the Lord with just just all of it, your heart, your soul, and anything else that you have access to. And so that's your mind, your strength, your wealth, the way that you use your home, to be hospitable to others, the way that you take your education to serve those who might not know what you know, the way that you take your phone and set a screen limit, a timer on there so that you can't waste your time, the way that you might fill your lawnmower up with gas and let your neighbor use it. Love the Lord your God with everything that you have access to your mind and your strength. Each of these aspects of our being are preceded by the word all, all of it. We love love the Lord God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our strength, with all of our mind. We're not called to a half-hearted kind of love, not a segmented or compartmentalized love, but an all of ourselves love for the Lord. Now, next week, we're going to focus on how this love for the Lord corresponds to our love for neighbor. You keep reading in Deuteronomy 6, and, and what do you see? That this love for the Lord is expressed in teaching those that are in your home and leading them. It says that as you walk around, as you walk out by the gates, that this love should mark your life. And so we see both the horizontal and vertical implications even of this love in Deuteronomy 6. But what I want to focus on today is how while we might affirm we need this kind of love for the Lord, 
what we often find is that the compass of our heart rarely points perfectly north. Our love for the Lord is imperfect and misdirected, which brings us to our second movement of my sermon, a corrupted love, that our love is imperfect and misdirected. Now, if this command, this single command from Deuteronomy 6 was a test to pass, how would you do? Are you loving the Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, or with all your strength? Or would you say, you know what, honestly, I think I can put the word some there. I love the Lord, my God, with some of my heart, most of my soul, a lot of my strength, trying with my mind. Like, but who would say, yeah, I'm, I'm crushing it? Nobody. Your ability to perfectly obey this command is, is difficult. It would be easier for you to shoot an arrow and hit the sun than to perfectly obey this command. I mean, take quick assessment of your life. What do you bring up in conversation the most? What do you get most excited about? When you get that screen time notification, just like I did at 9.30 this morning, what does it say? Has it increased? Has it decreased? Why? If someone that didn't know you just took a moment to look at all of your bank transactions for the past month, what would they determine that you love? What does your YouTube and social media algorithm indicate that you care about the most? You see, this is just simply smoke rising from the fire that is burning in our hearts. What do you love? Our love is corrupted. Scripture is pretty honest about this, and we can see it in our own lives. It just simply provides biblical support for what we already know to be true. We're to love the Lord with our, our whole heart, and yet Jeremiah 17.9 says, but your heart is sick with sin and deceitfully wicked. Who could trust it? Well, we're supposed to love the Lord with all of our soul, and Proverbs 8.36 says, your sins have condemned your soul. We should love the Lord with all of our mind. But Romans 8, 7 says that the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God and cannot keep his commands. We're supposed to love the Lord with all of our strength. In Romans 7, 18, Paul himself confesses, our flesh is too weak to keep the commands of God. Now understand, this is every person's state before Christ. That's true. But hear this. I know many of you are Christians. And even as a Christian, you can forget the gospel. You can live as if these things are still true of you, like you are completely dead, hopeless in sin, too weak to obey God's commands. You can fall back into these old ways. You can fall back into sinful patterns of living or thinking if you don't keep the truth of the gospel in front of you. You see, this tragic realization will produce one of three responses. The first, whenever we say, okay, this is the command, oh man, I really fall short, you just double down on your effort. That is what this lawyer is going to do in response to the command of Jesus. Because what do we read in verse 29? But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Right? Oh, man, this command's really great. I mean, that's too hard for me. But who's my neighbor? Right? Can we just kind of bring in the parameters a little bit? Can we narrow this down so that maybe my neighbor can just be the people that act and think like me, the people that I live with, the people that I actually chose to be my friends? try to justify ourselves. And whenever we try to justify ourselves, it will lead us to pride, exhaustion, and self-exerted effort. That's not the right response. The second response is despair and hopelessness. To just say the bar is too high, um, I'm too broken, I'll never get there, right? Helplessness, hopelessness. That's not the right response either. What is the right response? How should this man have responded? How should Israel have responded in Deuteronomy 6? The same way that we should respond 
whenever we see the command of God and acknowledge our sinfulness. We respond in recognition and repentance. We admit that we can't completely keep the commands of God, that our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength are corrupted by sin, and we are condemned and hopeless in our hell-bound state. But in that prayer of humble admission, faith is birthed to, to acknowledge that there is no hope within ourselves to save ourselves. But that leads us to complete and full dependence upon Christ, who He is, what He has done, and that is faith. It is faith that initiates our walk with the Lord, our personal relationship with God. Lord, I am a sinner. I recognize that Jesus died for my sin on the cross and completely took that penalty. I have no ability to keep your commands, but Christ is resurrected and he places that Holy Spirit within you to live with him. It is faith that begins that relationship, initiates it, but it is daily practice of faith, daily trust in the Lord that sustains you and sanctifies you until your faith becomes sight. This complete dependence upon the Lord is to say, Lord, I see your commands. I want to. I know I need to. And ultimately, Lord, I need you to do it. I need you more than anything else. And so if you were to take a moment right now, look in your heart and say, I would say that I love the Lord with some, not all. What is it that's a distraction? What is it that you could say right now? I'm, I'm turning away from this. This is the year that I give this to God that I grow one step closer to loving him with all and not some. Now, for some of you, it might take an afternoon to think about that. I think for maybe a lot of you, there's something that immediately comes to mind. You're saying, Lord, I think this is where my affections are duplicitous. I think this is where I'm not giving you my 100% and my affections and actions are divided in love for you. Here's the good thing. When you admit that, when you recognize that, whenever you repent before the Lord and place your faith in Him, God always responds to that prayer in the exact same way. How does God meet us in our need? How does God answer that prayer with a love beyond measure? You see, we are able to love because He first loved us. A third movement, a costly love. We love because He first loved us. You see, our ability to love God is the result an evidence of God first loving us. Like the Olympic torch that is lit in Greece and then carried somewhere around the world to light the flame that is illuminated throughout the games. The source of love doesn't start with us. No, God is the source. And it is Christ who has carried the flame of this love from heaven into our very hearts that we might love him. This is exactly what John said in 1 John 4, 7 through 11. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. How? That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. God has made his love for us known. Understand that the Trinity, one God in three persons, Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, have eternally loved one another without beginning and in a way that will have no end. And that eternal love has been manifested to us who have received eternal life because God the Father sent his own 
son, as a propitiation, as a sacrifice, as a substitute for our sins. So if we are to love others, if we are to know God is love, we must understand that we have first received the love of God in Christ, that Christ took our punishment. He removed the barrier of sin that stood between us and God. Why is sin so bad? You might think sin is so bad because it makes me feel bad, it brings guilt, it brings shame, it brings fear. Not that that's not true, but sin is so bad because it creates a barrier between us and God. Forgiveness is good because it brings us back to God. And that's what Christ has done. He sent his only son. Christ became like us so we could become like him, a child of the Father. You see, last week I was uh, laying on the couch with my son, Charlie. He turns four in uh, about two weeks now, in a couple weeks, and uh, he loves Ninja Turtles, Sour Patch Kids, and Bear Hugs, right? Or whenever the whole family gets involved, Charlie Sandwiches. So I'm, I'm there, I'm, I'm laying on the couch with him, he's snuggled up in a blanket, and I just squeeze him, and he scrunches up his face, and he looks at me and he says, Dad, you always fog up my glasses. And uh, that is true. Uh, he is two years old. He's, he's uh, worn glasses since he is two years old. He's about to turn four. And in the past two years, I am guilty of often fogging up his glasses. But at the same time, I thought about that. And I said, that is what it is like to know God as Father, that he is near to us. His, he makes his love known to us. He isn't distant. He isn't cold. He doesn't communicate to us by email or by Morse code. Our God draws near to us, near enough to us to fog up our glasses. And he says, you know how you want to know the nearness of my love? That I would send my own son to take on flesh. That as John 15, 13 says, God has shown his great love. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So with foggy glasses, we behold the love of God made known to us. All of grace. The love of God is self-initiated. It's undeserved. It's not motivated by our deservedness. We even see this after the Shema was given in Deuteronomy 6. Don't, don't somehow be tricked into thinking that this is a New Testament conception of who God is, gracious, merciful, abounding in steadfast love. This is who God has always been, which is why God told the Israelites in Deuteronomy 7, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all of the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Why? It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were actually the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He's saying, don't look at your own hands to try to justify my love for you. You can't earn this. This is self-initiated, 100% grace loving you. You're actually the fewest. You're actually probably, if, if people would have taken assessment of the most likely to impress God, you wouldn't have even made the top 10. But God magnifies his own glorious love and grace and showing his love to you. And it is this love that uproots the weeds of pride that somehow think we can keep God's commands in our own effort. It is this kind of love that plants seeds of hope 
and a barren heart that might have seemed lifeless. You see, the love of God begets love for God, which brings us to our fourth movement. It is a created love. The Lord creates a new capacity to love. Understand that the love of God is often referred to as the expulsive power of a new affection. The expulsive power of a new affection, saying, this love's been placed in your heart. Love for other things that are less than are now driven out. God makes us a new creation, thus giving us a new capacity to love him. That's why 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. Remember all that stuff we said a moment, a moment ago about how our hearts are broken, we're corrupted, our soul doesn't work like it's supposed to, our mind thinks about the wrong things, and we're not strong enough to actually obey God's commands? We'll hear the promise of what God has done for those that are a new creation. We can love the Lord with our hearts. Why? Because Ezekiel 36, 26 says that God gives us a new heart and a new spirit he puts within us. He removes the heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. That happens at the moment of conversion. And now our desires, our longing, our will wants God. We're supposed to love God with all of our soul. Psalm 23, 3 says he restores our soul and leads us in paths of righteousness. We're to love God with all of our mind. And Romans 12, 2 says that our minds are renewed and being renewed. They are transformed by the love of God. We're to keep the Lord God's command by loving him with all of our strength. And what does 2 Corinthians 12 says? That his grace is sufficient in our weakness because his power is made perfect in our weakness. And Philippians 4.13 says that we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. So let me ask, do you love God in this way? Do you love God? There's, there's a sense in which you can say this, but you can also see it. Your love has a metaphorical weight to it that almost acts like gravity. This concept comes from St. Augustine, who says, my weight is my love. Wherever I am carried, my love is carrying me. What does he mean by that? When he says my weight, it's, there's a weight to my love. In the same way that if you place a stone on the top of water, it will immediately sink. If you release air from the bottom of a pond, it will immediately shoot up to the surface. There's, there's a, a gravitational pull. There's, there's evidence to it. He's saying, you know, you can ultimately see my love in the way that I live. And the same is true of us. And this becomes his prayer. He, he asks for a Godward gravity to his love. He says, by your gift of love, we are set on fire and carried upwards. We grow red hot and ascend. Lit by your fire, your good fire, we grow red hot and ascend as we move upwards. You see, the embers of a flame in a fire pit will always move upward. And the life of a Christian, warmed by the love of God, will always go Godward, will always grow closer to him. We'll burn in love for him and a love for others. There's a weight to it. There's a gravity to our love. And the love of Christ is the flame that keeps the fire of our hearts burning. Seen in the fifth and final movement, a compelling love. It is the love of Christ that compels us, the love of Christ that controls us. There's a children's book called The Little Prince. Maybe you've read it, maybe you haven't. There's a line in it that says this. If you want to build a ship, if you want to build a ship, 
Don't just drum up people to collect wood. Don't just assign people tasks that put them to work. No, rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. That's how you build a ship. I want you to understand the, the, the self-sacrificial, self-giving, joy-filled, servant-hearted acts of loving thy neighbor are the involuntary response of experiencing the endless immensity of God's love for you and longing for more. This is why 2 Corinthians 5.14 says, for the love of Christ controls us, compels us. How? Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all have died. What motivates you? Is it peer pressure? Is it the moral norm? Is it this guilt or obligation that means you need to conform to some standard? Is it religious duty? No, you're compelled and controlled by the love of God for you because you have concluded this, that Christ has died for you. Therefore, you have died to self and you now have been purchased by Christ and live for another. And this is where we come back to the command from Luke 10. You should love the Lord your God with your whole being and love your neighbor as yourself. That's an imperative command. That's not a suggestion in Scripture. But I want you to understand how that works in light of the gospel. This is huge. I think if you could write this down, I think if you could keep this in front of you, it would change your entire life. Because there is a cycle to understanding this, to this gospel-centered life. What I have talked about on a macro level here is now applied in this micro level. The cycle of the gospel-centered life is this, that you should. You can't. Christ did, and you can. You should. You can't. Christ did. You can. Let's say that you're to be patient. Right? The Lord commands you to be patient. And yet, what's going to happen on Tuesday morning whenever you're rushing to get everything ready? You forgot that somebody did something they were supposed to do. You turn to your spouse or one of your kids, and immediately you lose your cool and you say something you shouldn't, and you're marked by impatience. You should. You can't. Oh, still sin in here. It's frustrating. You know what you remember? Christ died for that sin. Christ did that. He completely washed it away. It's forgiven. It was hung on a cross somewhere and is no more. Thrown as far as the east is from the west. Christ did that. Christ forgave me. And you know what? Christ has placed the Holy Spirit within me so that because the Holy Spirit lives in me, I can bear the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience. I can repent. I can be forgiven. Now I can take this command that I'm supposed to obey. Now, because the Holy Spirit lives within me, because that sin has been forgiven, I'm no longer crippled by the guilt of it. And I can actually reconcile with that person that I hurt. I can remind them of the gospel and I can experience its truth myself. You do that Tuesday, you do it Wednesday, you do it Thursday, you do it twice Friday, right? It's just constantly in your mind. This is, this is what I should be doing. This is, I can't do it. Christ did it completely obeyed, died in my place, rose again, forgave it, given me life, given me the spirit. Now I can do it. Not because I'm white knuckling it, doing it in my own strength, like I'm some, on some performance treadmill, but because this brings God glory, loving God and loving neighbor to the glory of God the Father. And you know what the amazing thing is? This is the entire storyline of the whole Bible, right? So every time you do this, you're reminded of God's grand arc of redemption, creation, God is holy. Well, we were created to live with God in perfect harmony, complete obedience to his commands in the garden. God is holy. And yet what happened? Our first parents fell in the garden, and we do daily. But you know what? The Gospels, a section of your Bible where Christ comes on the scene, is the reminder of Christ's redemption, that he comes and saves us. And you know what? He gives his people the spirit 
churches are formed, the mission of God goes forth, all looking to the day that Christ returns and makes all things new. You experience this restoration now on earth as it is in heaven and will one day be experienced in full. I should, I can't. Christ did, you can. This is the good news of the gospel. So on our best days, we love the Lord, but we also have to constantly repent of our disoriented love. We reorient our minds around the love of God. We renew our commitment to love God and to love others. And how is this displayed practically? In the weight of your love. What does this look like? Justin Early says, based upon how you live today, who are you becoming? Based upon how you live today, your time, your intentionality, your thoughts, the people that you think about, care about, how, who are you becoming? Who will you be 10 years from now if every single day of your life was marked by exactly what you did today? That's a good question, right? Do you love the Lord with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength? What does that look like daily? Daily, it means soaking your mind and heart in the scriptures, hearing his voice, I think there are things that become so second nature that maybe you tried really hard at to begin with. Going to the gym every day, brushing your teeth, whatever, it just becomes natural. Like what, what does your daily routine say about your love for the Lord? What about weekly? Man, do you gather with the saints, right? I mean, I was reminded again this week, this is, un, this is unbelievable. Like there is not another moment of my week that I will get to worship with 200, 250 people who love the Lord, where this is like a sacred place. I want to be here. I need this. I need to hear you sing. I, I need to talk to you in the hallway. I need to be encouraged that Christ is still on his throne and you're evidence of that to me. That's great. I want to be here. I want to worship. I want to, I want to encourage people throughout the week. That shows my love for the Lord monthly annually? What does it look like to say, this is, this is my love on display? Church, we love God and we love others because Christ first loved us. Let's pray.